Well, my name's Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus Church. Glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'm going to read probably more scripture than I've ever read in a sermon before. It might be slightly overwhelming, but it'll help if you have a Bible. We'll, we'll lead you along, give you page numbers as well as we can. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke in just a minute, which is on page 714. In these Bibles, just keep your hand up if you need one. Um, you're welcome to use your own, of course, as well. There, but there are communication cards in here if you'd like to pass off a prayer request or updated contact information. Uh, you're welcome to use those communication cards. And then, really important today, a notes page. And I still see some up on this table. So you don't have a notes page, raise your hand. Dimitri, Anglin, thank you guys. Uh, Bob, we can help you out with notes pages. That will be, that'll be helpful. Just a lot of content, kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, tapping into some serious content here today. Okay, so uh, I love road trips. I don't love driving, but I love being on road trips because I appreciate that extended time of conversation. You know, like there's nothing to do here except just ride in the car together and, and be together. Granted, it can be challenging, I realize, uh, but in my experience, at least the last few times we've taken road trips with family, I've just loved the time, specifically with my kids. And um, one of the games that we played on our last big multi-state road trip went like this. We would, one person would just ask the other person, tell me everything you know about fill in the blank and just go. Just tell me everything you know. Tell me everything you know about your favorite baseball player. Tell me everything you know about the state of California. Right? Tell me everything you know about the color orange. I mean, it could be anything, and just go. And if you ask good questions, and if your kids are talkers, like my kids are talkers, then a good question can take you through Oregon. I mean, it can like you can just you can go for a ways with this kind of with this kind of question. Um, so I want to do like a 30-second version of this game together this morning. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay. It's only 30 seconds, right? So what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you, uh, or come up here, Bill, and uh, we and just introduce yourself if you don't know them, and then answer this question. Tell me everything you know about this person, right? Not Benedict. Almost. There she is. Ready? Go. Good. You guys know a lot. Maybe I don't have to teach. So um, we're in a series right now called Monks, Moms, and Missionaries, How Radicals Show Us the Way to Live. And the big idea that we've kind of been playing with over the last couple of weeks is this, that some people, specifically in the history of the Christian faith, who live such um, remarkable lives are written off by much of the church, much of us, many of us, as extreme. Their situation was extreme, their faithfulness to God was extreme, and we write them off, in, in my opinion, too quickly. We, in other words, we say, well, I will not allow them really to influence uh, my life because they're, they're, um, they're unrealistically different from me. Uh, they're extremists, right? And, and what I'm trying to argue is that they're not extreme, they're radical. They're radical. And the difference is important. The root of the word radical in Latin is radix. It means root. The root of the word uh, from which we get extreme is extremis, which means far off, distant, like the extremities 
of a, of a person's body. So we're using the word radical in this series in the original sense to mean the one who is close to the root, the one who is close to the source, the perspective that is life-giving, not far out. So some of the people that we're thinking of and talking about appear to be pretty extreme. And what I'm asking you to consider is that if they seem super different from you and me, which they do in most cases, maybe it is, maybe it's us. Maybe we're the ones who have slid way out of bounds in terms of historic Christian uh, living. So we're looking at people who I'm arguing aren't extreme. They're actually radical. They live close to the source. They could teach us how to live. Now, there's probably nobody in the history of Christianity who is a better example of a radical who is written off as extreme than Mary. Christians throughout history, from each of the three major Christian streams, historic Roman Catholicism, historic Eastern Orthodoxy, and then the last five, six hundred years, the Protestant movement, all agree on this. Mary is the ideal disciple. They all agree on this. Mary is the ideal model <clears throat> disciple. And yet as a model, and by that I mean as someone to emulate, as a teacher, as an example, someone to look to and learn from, we commonly write Mary off. Mary is commonly written off. And the reasons that people write Mary off so frequently are different depending on who you're talking to. I'll paint two sort of camps for one group, Mary is written off. She is, they have such a high view of Mary that it's as if she's become like not even human anymore. She's divine. She's almost this source of magical power, almost like a, a sort of a source of luck that you would appeal to. When I was in high school, sophomore in high school, I went to Mexico. I was riding in a public bus, and I remember distinctly two pictures on the front of the bus uh, next to each other above the windshield. One was an explicit picture of a barely dressed woman, and right next to that picture, it's amazing, it's right here, and right next to that is a traditional painting of Mary. <laughs> like I was so confused by that, you know, as if she's sort of some sort of, I don't know, protective good luck sort of thing. Other Christians throughout history have have embraced a, um, like a view or a perspective of Mary that is extremely low. And we don't even want to really talk about her too much. Maybe a couple of times at Christmas we'll, we'll mention her. Um, as, if, as if she's not super important or maybe a little bit too dangerous to, to get too close to, almost practically ignored as irrelevant. I remember a similar uh, story. I was in graduate school and I was in a conversation with a, a group of Christians who had come onto campus to kind of promote a specific um, historical perspective on Christian theology. And they were talking about Mary in a way that was so offensive to me. Uh, it was surprising to me. And one of my friends who was in this little conversation that we had said to one of them, man, if you talked about my mom, like the way you're talking about Jesus' mom, we would have issues, <laughs> right? So whether you lean towards this view of Mary that is extremely high, or whether you lean towards a view of Mary that I would say is maybe extremely low, it probably depends on just how you grew up. It probably depends almost entirely on the church of which you were a part in your formative years. And whichever church it was, I would argue you likely embraced 
an extreme view of Mary, or you've reacted against an extreme view way over to the other side and potentially are pretty close to an extreme view in the opposite kind of camp. So, friends, my goal is not to argue one of these over the other, though I'm interested in the topic and I'd love to talk with you about it if you're interested. But my goal this morning is to kind of push through those prickly outer branches of this debate and get inside the bush close to the root to try to discover what it is about Mary that is radical, what it is about her that has caused the best thinkers in all of the Christian movement the last 2,000 years to agree that she is a radical who teaches us something fundamental about how to live and how to follow God. Right, so I'm going to get really specific about what it is that makes her the ideal disciple of Jesus in a few minutes. But before I get to that, I want to look at what the Bible says, what the Bible presents to us as kind of a biographical sketch of Mary. I want to answer the question, what do you know about this woman? By the way, I said a minute ago that your view on Mary probably is shaped mostly by your church experience as a kid. Maybe you had no church experience as a kid. Maybe you have no real church background. That's actually to your advantage in this sense today because I think you maybe have escaped some of the political and theological posturing and kind of the flack that has kind of surrounded this, this person um, that's such a significant part of the, the story of Jesus. All right, so take out your Bibles. Look at Luke chapter 1. I'm going to invite you to set aside what you know about Mary or believe or think about Mary. Just just in time, to, just for the purpose of maybe being exposed to just the plain words of Scripture as it, as it relates to her life. Let's learn a little bit about this woman. Uh, I'm going to read some passages. The first few are long, don't worry. The, the last ones are shorter. But we're going to look at 12 scenes that are presented to us in the Gospels. Here's the first. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's John the Baptist's mom, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a town called Galilee to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Virgin's important. Joseph is important. David, he's a descendant of the king of Israel, right? a historic long time ago king. The virgin's name was Mary. First time we hear it. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. How many of you have heard, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee? That's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. Verse 29. Um, Mary was greeted or was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Apparently she is, Mary. You have found favor with God. So um, the angel says she's highly favored. And again, you have found favor. The word there is, is um, charis, grace. So favor and grace, same sort of idea. Um, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of not Joseph, but the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
So in our way of thinking, like his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David, through Joseph's side, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, the people of Israel. This king will reign over the people of Israel. I know, it's thick. Forever. His kingdom will never end. Here's Mary's response, verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Interesting prepositional uh, interpretation challenge here. It's not the Holy Spirit. So come is obvious. Enter. Arrive. The Holy Spirit will show up. But not with and not within, upon. What does that mean? Well, Luke says, or the angel actually, it's like being overshadowed. Like when you're in the shadow of a big tree and your entire being is affected by something bigger and you're in the shadow of it. And this is what will happen to you, Mary, when the Spirit of God overshadows you. Then even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And here's the second line we get from Mary, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. The word there is doula. I am the Lord's doula. I am the Lord's helpmate, Mary said. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. That's the first scene. Second scene is the very next verse. Mary goes to visit this relative of hers, Elizabeth, who the angel refers to. Verse 40, when she entered Zechariah's home, that's the husband, greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Isn't that interesting? But why am I so favored, she says. And then look down at verse 45. Blessed is she, who, referring to Mary, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill her promises to her. His promises to her. Sorry. And then, as Melissa said, Mary's response is to sing this power ballad, this remarkable hymn of praise and adoration that is remarkably rooted in history, and she seems to see this own experience that God is laying out in her life as, an, as a fulfillment of thousands of years of history of her people. I won't read the whole thing, but it begins with, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble estate of his servant, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And then she goes on to just this um, this sense of like deep significance, both historically and politically. What, this, what will be a result of carrying this Son of God? For instance, look at 51. Um, in the present tense, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from thrones. He's lifted up the humble. But he's fulfilled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham... 
who's like the beginning of the story, like thousands of years earlier. She sees this experience as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. I mean, it's remarkable. Just as he promised his or our ancestors, political ramifications, theological ramifications. All right, that's the second scene. Third scene, chapter 2, verse um, 5. Oh, yeah. So this is what we read at Christmas. Mary and Joseph get on this donkey because the, the Roman government is imposing a census on the, on the Jewish people. We want to count all you Jews. So they have to ride this donkey a bunch of days to Bethlehem, and this is what happens in verse 5 and verse 6. Joseph went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there in Bethlehem, time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there's no room available for them, um, no guest room, no room in the inn. Okay? Fourth story. The whole shepherd scene. Bottom of the pay scale. Night workers. Midnight shift. Men tending sheep, angels show up to these guys. They come as a response to what they're told. This is now uh, verse 16 and, and forward. They go, I find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. All who heard it were amazed about what the shepherd said to them. And here's Mary again. Goal here is the biography of Mary. Let's get a handle on it. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Here's the fifth scene. It's the eighth day now. Jesus is eight days old. Mary goes, I'm in verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Is it 2? Thanks, too. Mary goes to the temple for this purification rite. Verse 22. Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as was written in the law of the Lord. When they're there at the temple, this interesting thing happens. This prophet named Simeon shows up. Look all the way up at verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said this to Mary. Up at the top of page 716. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, he says to Mary. The next scene we have, the sixth scene, now Jesus is 12. They go to the temple for a big feast. Jesus stays there in the temple. They, mom and dad don't realize it. They go. They find out that he's lost. They return to try to find him. And in verse 48 of chapter 3, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So there's this conflict. There's this understanding to a certain degree, and yet this confusion. Fast forward to John's gospel. We're kind of taking Luke's train because almost every scene in Mary's life is, is relayed by Luke, but there are a few that aren't. So on your notes, you've got a few scenes from Luke now kind of coming up from the bottom. Look at John chapter 2, or listen as I describe it. This is the first miracle that's described in John's gospel. And it's super fascinating and, frankly, very complicated. 
Um, verse 1 of chapter 2 of John. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And then Jesus' response is, woman, why do you involve me? And the NIV points out that by woman, he doesn't mean any disrespect, which I think is interesting. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. And Mary doesn't even respond to him. She looks at the servants and she says, just do whatever he says. Right? Just do whatever he tells you. And nearby, there's six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, and the whole water and wine thing. Jesus turns water into wine so the party can keep going. It's so strange, right? He appears to say no, but then he does what she implies he will do. It's very complicated. Uh, Let's go left now to Mark chapter 6. Matthew is the first gospel. Mark is the second. Mark chapter 6. I know this is a ton of content. A few more here. Mark chapter 6, it's on page 703. First few verses of Mark chapter 6. Now Jesus is in his ministry. He's like a public figure. He's kind of big time. Jesus left there and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach there in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. And this is what the crowd says, his hometown crowd. Where did this man get these things, they said? What's this wisdom he's been giving? Or where, what's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters? Aren't they here with us? And they took offense at him. I'm like, who do you think you are? Like, you just came home from college, all smart, you know. Look at back to Luke chapter 8. A couple more stories. Luke chapter 8, trying to gather sort of a biblical biography from these little teeny sketches of Mary. 8 verse 19. Here's a couple of scenes that reveal sort of a crowd dynamic and how Mary interacts there. Luke 8 19. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. It's like he's on tour, he's a big deal. He's close by. Mom and the brothers, they come to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, hey, your mothers and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. And Jesus' reply is surprising. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Oh, right? And then there's another one just like it, two pages to your right, Luke chapter 11. Turn two pages to Luke chapter 11 and verse 27, a similar dynamic. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is healing people. It's very um, miraculous and astonishing, and it is evoking all kinds of responses in a crowd. And in verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus replied, blessed Rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. All right. Two more. 
John chapter 19, go to your right. John chapter 19, now we're at the cross. All of Jesus' disciples, except a very few, have abandoned him because of fear. John chapter 19, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, that's John the author referring to himself. The disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And then just one, one more, Acts chapter 1, this I know isn't formally in the Gospels, but it's written by Luke, which is the Gospel writer. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus has ascended into, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and that's what they're doing. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were, Luke is a historian, here's the details. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All right. You still with me? Okay. Twelve scenes from the Gospels, which when pieced together, create a a picture, a sketch of the life of Mary. That's the earliest Christian record of Mary. Do other New Testament writers acknowledge her? Yes, but very briefly, for instance, Paul says this to the Galatian church, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Right? So there's consistency, though not the level of detail that we get in the gospel. So, on one level, pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. Basic sketch of the life of Mary, but let me show you three reasons why it maybe is not quite as simple as we'd like it to be. The first is this. She's unique. Mary is unique. There is only one human in the history of the world who is called to partner with God in this specific way, like Mary. There's only one Savior of the world, only one Messiah of the world. There's only one person who is God in the flesh, and that one person is Jesus, and he has one mother, right? There's only one person called to give birth to the Savior of the world in a very literal sense, Mary is the only person ever created for this very specific and unique role that she plays in the history of the world. The Messiah had to be born of a woman, and Mary was that woman, and nobody else was. She's totally unique. She is unlike, in a sense, she's unlike anyone else ever created. Well, how does that make things um, like less simple than we might like to think? Well, clearly, she's not just like everyone else, right? Clearly, she, she carries and gives birth to and nurses and nurtures Jesus. She is Jesus's mom. She is therefore the mother of God. This is fundamentally why she has been for a very long time and continues to be honored by the church in an unusual way. This is why. 
because she plays an unusual role. She is unique in the story of the salvation of the world. She's not just another follower of Jesus. She is that, but she's more than just that. She's unique. She plays a critical role in bringing salvation and restoration to the whole world. She's chosen by God before the beginning of time to play a role in the story, which can reasonably be argued to be more important than any other role that anybody else plays. She should be honored. She should be admired. She should be respected. It's biblical that she is blessed. Christians disagree on how and to what degree we should do this, but the issue just isn't quite as simple as we might like for it to be because of the undeniable reality that Mary is unique. That's one reason there has been disagreement in the broader Christian community for the last 2,000 years about Mary. It's one reason. Here's another. She's mysterious. <laughs> She's mysterious. I typically think of Mary as the mother of Jesus. I don't know what you shared when you shared with one another in those few seconds, but I imagine most of you said she's the mother of Jesus. Am I right? Was that kind of a common phrase that was used? Yeah, she's the mother of Jesus. That's typically what I think of when I think of her. The role that we celebrate every Christmas is that one specifically. We know who the woman is in the picture because she's got a baby. So she's in reference to the baby. She's the mother of Jesus. According to the Bible, the baby is fully human therefore needs to have a human mother, right? So if God, but the, but the baby is also fully God. So if the baby is God in the flesh, which would the gospels clearly proclaim and Paul clearly proclaim, then the mother of that baby is the mother of God. And that is mysterious, right? That is mysterious. But she's not just the mother of God because she's also the daughter of God. She was just like you and me, created by God, loved by God, rescued by God, restored by God, right? Brought into a relationship with God. So she is both the daughter of God and the mother of God. And those two roles are familiar enough to me and maybe to you that I can kind of barely hold them together in their mystery, but that's not all. She's also the bride of God. And now my mind is like completely blown, right? To the degree, to the degree which she has this intimate partnership with the Holy Spirit through which she is impregnated, through which she then carries not Joseph's son, miraculously, but the son of God. And to the degree which the one that she carries is the savior of the world, is God, she is the bride of God. And that's very, uh, that's challenging language for me, but follow me. She is the daughter of God the Father. She is the mother of God the Son. And she is the bride of God, the Holy Spirit. And that, my friends, is the kind of thing you put in the category called mystery, right? That's like mind-blowing complexity that we can't quite get our heads around. But it's one of the reasons it's not quite as simple as it seems. Here's a third reason. When we look through the scriptures for a biographical sketch of Mary, those 12 passages that I read to you, those are clearly about Mary. 
Clearly, nobody debates that. But there may be more scriptures about Mary, and that's the, that's the source of the debate. There may be more scriptures about Mary. And the way you interpret those other scriptures completely shapes your theology of Mary. Let me give you two examples really quickly. The, I'll give you the first and the last. There's dozens. Here's the first. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is probably, or no, it's not probably. This is for sure, this is the first prophecy that restoration is in the works, that there will be a savior, that there will be a, the broken things will be put back together. This is after the whole eating the forbidden fruit scene, and God is now speaking to a, part of the reason this is challenging, Genesis 3, is because it's a poem. So you don't interpret the poem quite the same way you interpret the gospels, which are just kind of straight this is what happened, and then they ate this, and then they went to this city, and it's just sort of plainly, plainly revealed. This is a poem. For instance, you got poetic stuff happening, like you got God speaking to the servant. Doesn't mean serpent. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it's poetic. It's a little bit harder to interpret. This is what he says, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He referring to the woman's offspring, will crush your head. So we see that as the first prophecy about Jesus. And he, the serpent, will strike your heel, woman. So the question and debate is, who's the woman? That's the question. Some say it's humanity. It's as broad as you can get. Others say it's the church. It's the people of God. That's the woman. And some say it's Mary. Clearly, it's Mary. So that's one example. The last example, on the other extreme side of the Bible, Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Again, complicated by the fact that the kind of literature that is Revelation, it's kind of called apocalyptic literature, it's full of symbol and sign and code and subversive political messages, very notoriously hard to interpret. But here again is a, fundam- is a key text that shapes people's view. Revelation 12, first two verses. A, a great sign, this is John's vision. A great sign appeared in heaven, colon. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Question under debate, who's the woman? Is it humanity? Is it the people of God? Is it Mary? There are people throughout history that take all those views. So those are the, I think those are the most two important scriptures up for debate. There are others. And in addition to the others is 2,000 years of church history and tradition that is full of information and uh, writings about Mary. And some of them continue to be written and expanded upon. All right, so those are three reasons, friends, why a unified vision of Mary is just not quite as simple as you'd like to think it would be. And the deeper I get into this, the more overwhelming it becomes to me. But there's a part of me that loves it. I'm so fascinated by it that I keep diving deeper and deeper, and it gets, it gets more and more profound and yet more complicated. But here's the simple truth. Here's the simple fact where I want to land this morning. 
And we can come back to this. This is the simplest, most basic thing about Mary. And it's the very thing, this simple basic thing, it's the very thing that makes Mary the ideal or the model disciple. And it's the very thing that makes her a true radical that absolutely shows us how we should live. It is the one thing all of Christianity agrees upon historically when it comes to Mary. And I think that it is this, this simple thing, this basic thing. I think that all of Christianity would agree that it is the most important thing about Mary. And it is also the most challenging thing about Mary. And here it is. She said yes to God. She said yes to God. I mean, when you boil it all down, this is what you have. Here's her language. I am a servant of God. This is her response to this angelic presence that says things that are biologically, yeah, impossible, right? I am, a ser- I am God's doula. I am here to help birth life into the world. May it be to me as you have said. That's biblical for yes, right? She says yes to God, right? You can just chase those, like those trains of thought for years, but it, when it, ultimately it comes back to this. She said yes. When it was confusing, she said yes. When it didn't make any sense biologically, she said yes. When it was completely physically impossible, she said yes. When it came as a complete surprise, where did that show up? She says yes, when it means all kinds of pain, like literal stuff, like you're going to ride on a donkey for several days when you're nine months pregnant because of some political oppression. She says yes, even though it made her the subject of rumors for her entire life. She says yes, even though she would never be understood. She says yes, even though it meant criticism and suffering and longings to see my son and yet there's a bigger vision, and he's not even talking to me. She says yes, and even though it will pierce her own soul at some almost unfathomable level, being a mother, watching your son uh, be violently killed, she says yes, and it is admirable. It is off the chart respectful, respectable. And that simple yes, friends, is what matters. That simple yes is what is super challenging to me. And it is the radical root of the life of Mary. She says yes to God. And then, by saying yes to God, she becomes what the Greek Eastern Church calls the theotokos, the God-bearer. By saying yes, she literally carries truth and grace with her wherever she goes. By saying yes to God, she literally ultimately gives birth to the love of God in a physical form that people can relate to for the first time. Isn't that amazing? By simply, what, did she climb a mountain? Was she super holy? By saying yes to God, she became the God-bearer, the one who, in a way that is unprecedented, literally ushers the living Christ into the world. That's amazing. Now, at the beginning of the Bible, there is another woman, and the story of sin entering the world is linked closely to this other woman. Do you know who I'm talking about? Her name is Eve, right? She is famously deceived, and then she eats the forbidden fruit. 
She did not say yes to God. And as a result, humanity's relationship with God gets broken. Humanity's relationship, like they get kicked out of the garden. Humanity's relationship with humanity gets broken. You got brother killing brother. Humanity's relationship with creation gets broken. Now you got to earn a living by the sweat of your brow and there's pain in childbirth and all kinds of brokenness happens. And you may have picked up on this. A, uh, Eve is to blame. She gets the blame. Eve gets the blame, which you may not have heard quite so often or quite as clearly is that there is another woman and she said yes to God. She did say yes to God. And when she said yes, the restoration of all things took hold within her. And the relationship that man was created to have with God begins to get restored. And the relationship that humanity was created to have with other humans began to be reconciled. And then the relationship that humanity was supposed to have with all of creation, it begins to get restored. And then this, this, this love of God that is conceived in her and then is birthed into the world, it changes everything. The second century Christian leader named Irenaeus, he puts it like this, the knot, K-N-O-T, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. So here's the good news, friends. Here's the good news. No other human being has ever or will ever carry Jesus into the world like Mary did. And no other human being has ever or will ever, or can ever carry Jesus into the world like you can. No other human being is specifically positioned like you are to carry grace and truth into your contexts, into your work environments, into your campus uh, situation, into the conflicts that are surrounding you. No one can be uh, like the messenger of tangible love like you can into the oppressive systems to which you're aware, into the relational brokenness that is all around you. This is really important. God doesn't just drop love in a tangible, understandable, relatable form out of the sky. He doesn't. He births it out of a woman, out of a mom out of an individual, a real person, that's always the way it works. That's always the way it works. Love in a way that we can touch and know, love that changes things, comes through a person. And by saying yes to God, we too, in a way that is unique to us, can be God-bearers, can bring the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus into the situations that are just so native to us. Amen? All right. Last story. Several years ago, I was uh, working with this guy who had an alcohol addiction. And I was going to meetings with him and meeting with him. And um, through that, I learned some language in like the 12-step program, the recovery world, that was really helpful to me. And the phrase that I felt like made the biggest impact on my life in terms of my relationship with God and my relationship with the world was this. They talked about carrying the message. Any of you heard that? Carry the message. That was the challenge. It wasn't this, you need to be perfect. It wasn't this set of achievements. It was this, carry the message into the world. 
like a mom, receive the truth and then give the truth to others like birthing a child into the world. So may we look to Mary as an example of obedience to God. And may her radical willingness to surrender herself to God's plan show us how to live. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, I pray for grace on the really practical level when saying yes to you feels unrealistic because the consequences are going to be too hard, reputations will be affected, my comfort level will be affected. May we say yes to you. May we say yes to you, and in saying yes to you, in submitting ourselves to you, God, Would you bring love and truth and grace into the world around us, through us in a way that cannot happen, Uh, or in a way, I guess, that is your desired plan for us, God. So have mercy on us. May we partner with you, Lord, faithfully, in Jesus' name, amen.